You are listening to CGSW on 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 territory. Today, in honor of the 100th anniversary of the very company he founded this year, we'll be looking at Walt Disney. The date is July 17, 1955. Despite the intense heat in Anaheim, California, there's a line of traffic and crowds of people eagerly waiting outside the gates of the brand new theme park, Disneyland. According to Neil Gabler in his book Walt Disney, Walt himself envisioned a theme park that was a more imaginative and immersive experience rather than a mere collection of rides and games traditionally associated with amusement parks at the time. On opening day, Disneyland was well over capacity. A woman's high heel got stuck in the asphalt, food stands were emptied of refreshments, and so on. So yeah, opening day did not exactly go smoothly. Despite these mishaps though, Americans who either visited the park or saw the event broadcast on ABC News realized that Disneyland was more than an amusement park. It was a place where kids could be kids, where adults could relive their childhood, and where everyone could temporarily escape the everyday world. As Life magazine explains, the fact that Disneyland opened in the 1950s proved to be perfect timing, with the United States enjoying the unprecedented prosperity following the Second World War. President Eisenhower signed legislation to allow construction on the interstate highway, and the baby boom meant that lots of children wanted to visit Disneyland. But, above all else, it essentially erased the debt that Walt's production studio had accumulated over the previous two decades. In many respects, the story and career of Walt is the dictionary definition of the American dream, a classic rags-to-riches story that forever changed popular culture. With that said, one quote from Life magazine about Walt Disney has stood out to me for some time. It reads, Despite the perception that Walt Disney's career was an unbroken series of triumphs, the great visionary arguably failed, materially at least, more often than he succeeded. Walt Disney is one of those historical figures whose legacy and status as a cultural icon is so enormous that we forget he still faced the same trials and tribulations that many have faced. But what separates Walt from many others is his relentless drive to go above and beyond, regardless of financial circumstances, always going for quality over quantity, and seemingly able to predict the future of American entertainment. On historical figures, icons, and others, we'll examine Walt Disney's lasting legacy on popular culture and how his various pursuits within American and global entertainment evolved and even resonated with the world throughout the decades. Believe it or not, Walt had a distant connection to Canada. According to CBC, his father was born in Upper Canada in the town Bluevale, located in the Goderich community of Ontario. At the age of 20, his father left Canada with his own father to begin farming in Kansas. Walt himself was born in Chicago on December 5, 1901, moving with his family to Marceline, Missouri shortly afterwards. Although Walt was close with his mother, 
His father had an abusive side. He coerced Walt and his brother Roy to help him with a paper route he owned, sometimes in harsh weather conditions. According to Life magazine, young Walt turned to drawing to escape his unhappy home life. Despite their otherwise complicated relationship, Walt respected and even adopted his father's work ethic, which would shape his own in the years to come. After volunteering with the Red Cross in France shortly after World War I, Walt moved to Kansas City the next year, occasionally working as an inker and draftsman for commercial studios. It was during this time that he met his future animation partner, Ub Iwerks, whose extreme shyness contrasted Walt's outgoing personality. According to Life magazine, however, Iwerks was a very skilled artist whose talent surpassed that of Walt's, something which Walt himself even acknowledged. Walt worked at the Kansas City Film Ad Company, where he developed his interest in animation. While working there, he developed animated segments by using cutout figures with flexible limbs. In his book The Animated Man, Michael Barrier explains this allowed their positions to be manipulated under the camera, changing each frame that was photographed. When the film was projected, it gave the illusion that the figure was moving. Gabler points out that the relatively new medium of animation was primitive and progressed little in the 20 years of its existence. Nevertheless, Walt believed that animation presented many possibilities and began to further explore it. He would spend nights in his family's garage using a camera he borrowed from his boss to experiment with moving drawings. This brings out a key personality trait in Walt that defined his career. When he pursued a project, it was with an almost single-minded focus. At age 20, he partnered with iWorks to begin his own company, Laphograms. According to Life magazine, they produced a series of animated cartoon sketches, most notably the film Alice, which featured a real-life actress interacting with cartoon worlds. After Laphograms folded, Walt and Roy moved to Los Angeles, eventually being asked upon by New York producer Margaret Winkler to produce more of the Alice cartoons. Roy became an essential counterpart to Walt, overlooking their finances as their animation empire expanded. Although supportive of his brother, Roy was also the voice of reason when Walt's grandiose business ideas became too hard to achieve. Walt and Roy partnered up with iWorks to continue the Alice series, hiring more animators and officially opening the Disney Brothers Studio on October 16, 1923. Later, it would be renamed the Walt Disney Studio. As Stephen Watts explains in his book, The Magic Kingdom, Walt felt that he had exhausted all the possibilities with the Alice cartoons and began developing a new character. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit was born in 1927. A character who Watts describes as playful and energetic in bright and fast-paced cartoons with lots of humor and gags. The cartoons proved popular among audiences and were profitable for the studio. However, 
Walt would also suffer his first major career setback. Charles Mintz, who owned the character of Oswald under contract, took Oswald and some of Walt's key animators after the two men had a business disagreement. Fortunately, Roy and Ub Iwerks remained loyal to Walt and continued to collaborate, although Iwerks eventually left the studio in 1930 to return in 1940. Despite this major setback, Gabler mentions Walt was not deterred and vowed to never again work for anyone else and strive to be his own boss. Without Oswald and income, Walt furiously worked on developing a new character. On the train ride back to Los Angeles after the disastrous meeting with Charles Mintz in New York, Walt developed a sketch for a cartoon titled Plane Crazy, where a mouse named Mortimer tries to impress a lady mouse. Walt's wife Lillian hated the name Mortimer, so Walt suggested the Irish name Mickey. This time, Lillian approved. As for why Mickey is a mouse, Barrier points out that while Walt still worked in Kansas City, he would frequently see mice in his wastebasket and kept some in a cage on his drawing board, fascinated with their antics. Although possibly a legend, this is always Walt's story on what inspired Mickey Mouse. Although Walt developed the initial prototype and personality of Mickey, even voicing him in the early cartoons, Watts mentions it was actually Ub Iwerks who created Mickey's final design. Walt and Iwerks continued production on Plain Crazy and another cartoon, The Galloping Gacho, that featured Mickey. While both these cartoons would see the light of day, it was ultimately Steamboat Willie that introduced audiences to Mickey Mouse. The 1927 film The Jazz Singer ushered in the sound era of Hollywood. After silent films being the norm for years, audiences could now put a voice to an on-screen character. From that point on, Walt was determined that sound cartoons were the way of the future. Technically, Steamboat Willie was not the first cartoon to use synchronized sound. Earlier instances include some of Max Flesher's cartoons, which contain musical soundtracks. But as Barrier explains, designing a fully integrated soundtrack that synchronized animation to sound effects and music was uncharted territory with technical obstacles. Disney animator Wilfred Jackson, whose mother was a piano teacher, suggested using a metronome to determine the number of frames of animation to beats per minute of music. Walt designed a chart that laid out the sound effects to correspond to the music. Traveling to New York to record the score, Walt met with respected producer Pat Powers, who agreed to record the score using a sound process called Cinephone to record a 17-piece orchestra with accompanying sound effects. According to the Library of Congress, a bouncing ball was added to the film print as a reference for the orchestra conductor to better gauge tempo changes. Steamboat Willie was released on November 18th 1928 at the Colony Theatre in New York City. It was a smashing success, and Mickey Mouse became one of the most popular cartoon characters of all time.
Watts believes Mickey's continued popularity at the height of the Depression was no coincidence. He notes that many of the Mickey Mouse cartoons throughout the 1930s had what he describes as a triumph of the little guy theme. Mickey represented the everyman who overcame adversity against all odds, a sentiment that resonated with many ordinary citizens who faced economic hardships. One example Watts mentions includes the 1929 cartoon Barnyard Battle, where Mickey leads mouse troops to victory against an enemy force of cats. Gabler points out that despite the depression, the success of the cartoons and the Mickey Mouse merchandise allowed Walt to further expand the still-thriving studio. Another popular character who emerged during this era is Mickey's faithful dog Pluto in 1930, who also became an innovative character due to his non-speaking role. The 1934 short Playful Pluto is notable for its scene where Pluto struggles to free himself after he gets stuck on flypaper. According to Gabler, this cartoon is an early example of an animated character visibly thinking through a situation through physical movement. Walt believed in having characters that express personality and emotion, rather than just characters used for physical gags. This line of thinking shaped Disney cartoons and the rest of animation history for that matter. Other characters who emerged during this era include the short-tempered Donald Duck in 1931, who actually surpassed making popularity at one point, and the lovably slow-witted Goofy in 1932. The studio also started the Silly Symphony series beginning with the famous Skeleton Dance cartoon, released in 1929. Despite the success of the cartoon shorts, Walt grew restless and made the big leap into developing an animated feature-length film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. As Life magazine mentions, Walt saw a silent film adaptation of the Grimm's fairy tale in January 1917, leaving an impression on him. It's strange to think now, but some questioned whether audiences would be interested in a feature-length cartoon. But just like sound cartoons, Walt believed animated movies were the way of the future. Lacking any outside funding, Gabler explains that Walt and Roy turned to the Bank of America for a loan. In addition, Walt strived to achieve greater realism in the animation style. For instance, multiplane cameras were utilized to give the animation a feeling of three-dimensionality and depth by using multiple background and overlay paintings which were situated on glass panes mounted several inches apart. Barrier explains, as the camera moved, the different levels would come in and out of focus, just like in a photograph. In addition, Gabler explains Walt made careful steps to ensure Snow White herself was not a mere cartoon character, but appears as an actual girl. As Walt's obsessive perfectionism caused slow progress and the film going well over budget, there was concern about whether Snow White would succeed. However, when it premiered on December 21st, 1937, it was a massive hit and was recognized as a great cinematic achievement. Not only did it provide an escape for audiences of the Great Depression like Mickey Mouse did, but many praised its technical advancements. Watts notes how it drew a wide array of emotions from audiences, 
Many laughed at the antics of the seven dwarves, and many wept when the seven dwarves mourned over the death of Snow White. Walt and his team, and Hollywood for that matter, were forever changed. All Walt could do was move forward and continue to work his magic. Walt and his team began production on the next feature film, Pinocchio, released in 1940. Not only did it popularize characters like Jiminy Cricket and the song When You Wish Upon a Star, but Life magazine notes it built upon the technological innovations of Snow White, including greater use of multiplane cameras and the development of underwater effects. Despite receiving rave reviews, Pinocchio did not draw on the same audiences as Snow White and was a financial flop upon its initial release. During Pinocchio's production, Walt was invested in another project, the concert feature, later titled Fantasia. Released in 1940, it originally started as a cartoon short intended to revitalize Mickey Mouse's waning popularity, entitled The Sorcerer's Apprentice, set to Paul Ducasse's composition of the same name. But Walt decided to go all in and produce a concert feature film that blended classical music and animation presenting an array of cartoon segments. Besides Mickey Mouse summoning broomsticks, it features hippos and alligators performing a ballet to Emile Carrier Poncelli's Dance of the Hours. It also featured Schurenbog summoning souls and evil spirits to Modest Mazorksky's A Night on Bald Mountain. It also featured the rise and fall of the dinosaurs to Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. As Watts explains, Fantasia was also known for using the Fanta sound system, using multiple audio channels and speakers within theaters. According to the Walt Disney Family Museum website, Fanta sound was innovative in the development of cinematic surround sound. Unfortunately, like Pinocchio, Fantasia failed to be profitable when released, partially due to its extremely high production costs. Despite this, Fantasia is now considered among the greatest animated films in history. With the studio already under much financial stress, worker disillusionment caused many Disney staff to unionize and go on strike in 1941. Watts describes the studio's haphazard pay structure as one cause of the strike. Animator Ward Kimball bitterly explained that even if two workers performed the same work for the same number of years, it was possible one could be making twice the salary of the other. In addition, Walt was never easy to work with, but his charming personality in the studio's early days could win over even the most disgruntled worker. But Watts writes that the studio's increased expansion diminished this personal bond between Walt and the staff, making him seem like a distant figure. Although an agreement was eventually made, many workers were fired, and Walt felt the sense of family within the studio was gone. Nevertheless, production resumed on the 1941 film Dumbo. Running at just over an hour, Dumbo was made economically due to the studio's financial distress using simpler animation. Fortunately, it proved to be profitable and was well-received by audiences and critics. A few months later, in 1942, Bambi was also released. Unlike the previous films, 
Bambi did not transport viewers to an imaginary world. Instead, it showed them the life of a young deer in the woods. With its minimal dialogue, Watts describes Bambi as a bittersweet look at life, death, family, the cycle of nature, and provided a cautionary tale on human encroachment on the natural world. Like the previous films, its production and animation style was ambitious and innovative. Walt and the animators used wildlife photographs, and even live deer, as models to ensure realism. Unfortunately, although later hailed as an animated classic, Walt once again saw a financial flop with Bambi. It would be a few years before the studio would return to producing classic animated films. Until then, with the United States now involved in World War II, Walt and his team turned its attention to releasing war propaganda films. Although these propaganda films were generally geared towards American audiences, a few were produced for Canadians. Barrier explains that from 1941 to 42, beginning before America entered the war, the studio received sizable commissions from the National Film Board of Canada, producing four cartoons that encouraged Canadians to buy victory war bonds. According to the NFB's website, 1941's The Thrifty Pig shows the Big Bad Wolf as a Nazi supporter who is unable to blow down the housemaid of war victory bonds. 1941's Seven Wise Dwarves starred the seven dwarves from Snow White leaving their minds to buy bonds. 1942's Altogether Now showcased various Disney characters demonstrating on Parliament Hill in support of the bonds. And then 1942's Donald's Decision stars Donald Duck deciding whether he should righteously purchase bonds or hold on to his money. It was during this decade that the studio perfected the combination of live action and animation. Their first tentative venture into this was 1941's The Reluctant Dragon, which Watts describes as a live action film interspersed with animated segments. Other similar films mentioned by Encyclopedia Britannica include 1942's Saludos Amigos and 1946's Make Mine Music. Of course, 1946's Song of the South was controversial within the black community due to relying on problematic racial stereotypes, which previously existed in certain Disney projects. In the view of Gabler, while Walt was not racist, and never made any degrading remarks about blacks or even asserted white superiority. He admits that, like most white Americans at the time, Walt was racially insensitive. In recent times, the Disney company has come to terms with these elements in their media. But more on this later. The 1950s would prove to be one of the biggest decades of Walt's career. According to Life magazine, Walt ventured into the still new medium of television. His first venture was the 1950 special, One Hour in Wonderland for NBC, partially serving as a promotion for his new film, Alice in Wonderland. A tremendous success, it opened the doors for other Disney television programs, including the Mickey Mouse Club and the children's series, David Crockett. Above all else, 
Walt devoted most of his attention to the construction on Disneyland during this time. There's a few possible sources of inspiration for building the park. Gabler explains that Diane Disney, Walt's daughter, recounted that he took she and her sister to the Griffith Park merry-go-round in LA. Diane recalled how families would roam throughout the park, but there was nothing for parents to do. Walt envisioned a park where the whole family could have fun. Walt's brother Roy offered another source of inspiration, model trains. As Watts explains, Walt had faced depression and discouragement towards the end of the 1940s, so his doctor recommended a hobby to take a break from work. Walt developed a fascination with model trains, leading him to construct a half mile of track in his backyard. According to Gabler, Roy explained that Walt wanted to make a big play train for the public. Although Walt became more interested in his theme park and live-action features by this time, the animation studio continued to release classics like 1950's Cinderella, 1953's Peter Pan, 1955's Lady and the Tramp, and 1959's Sleeping Beauty. Life magazine mentions that during the 1960s, the Disney company was increasingly viewed as conservative with events such as the breakout of the Vietnam War and the rise of popular figures like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, defining the era. However, Disneyland's attendance numbers remained high and films such as 1961's 101 Dalmatians and 1967's The Jungle Book proved popular. 1964's Mary Poppins became one of Walt's crowning achievements. It contained career-defining performances by Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke, and skillfully blended live-action with animation. Unfortunately, decades of smoking caught up with Walt. Watts notes that he had suffered nagging health problems for years, but his notorious coughing had grown worse. He was diagnosed with lung cancer, being told he only had two years to live at most. This didn't stop him from working until the end, finessing his plans for projects like Walt Disney World, which he would never live to see open in 1971. Walt Disney passed away on December 15, 1966. Although the Disney staff mourned the loss of Walt, they realized they had to carry on his legacy. The studio struggled to find its footing for the better part of the 70s and 80s. Encyclopedia Britannica mentions, while there was a handful of successful films released during this era, much of the revenues came from theatrical re-releases of the classic films and Disney World. But with the changeover of company executives in the 1980s, Disney saw a return to form at the end of the decade. The release of The Little Mermaid in 1989 was the start of a line of 90s classics like Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, among others. Their collaboration with Pixar produced Toy Story in 1995, greatly popularizing CGI animation, and beginning a partnership that has produced some of the greatest animated movies of our time. The company continued to grow, opening theme parks outside of North America and, throughout the 21st century, acquired companies like Pixar, Marvel, and Lucasfilms. 
Disney in recent years has worked to become more culturally and socially conscious, recognizing its history of racial insensitivity in the early days. For instance, Life Magazine acknowledges how the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests prompted converting the Splash Mountain ride at Disneyland, based on Song of the South, to Tiana's Bayou Adventure, based off 2009's Princess and the Frog. Zootopia's release in the rather politically turbulent year of 2016 proved timely as it cleverly used anthropomorphic animal characters to address themes of prejudice and racism. Disney continues to reflect and even shape the world as it did in the past. In the 1930s, it provided an escape from the Depression. In the 1940s, it contributed to the war effort. In the 1950s, it reflected the prosperity of the era. Even after Walt's passing, the company continues to work towards his vision of entertaining audiences young and old. Much of what makes Walt Disney's success story fascinating is acknowledging that he came from humble beginnings and faced trials and tribulations when working towards his greatest achievements and innovations in animation and beyond. He took many risks, but he was optimistic they would always pay off. He faced failures, but this did not discourage him from still working towards success. It's his vision that not only brought timeless characters and redefined global entertainment, but has created lasting memories for people across generations. And so, here's to a hundred years of the company whose founder once said, I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures, Icons, and Others. Stay tuned for future episodes.